Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm reading in a few moments with the first verse. Many of you here probably like to cook. You know, when you cook, you probably have a recipe you follow. Maybe it's a recipe in a book or on a card, or maybe it's the recipe in your head. And you like to follow those recipes. But you, you need to follow those recipes in just the right way. You know, whether you're making a, a red velvet cake or whether you've got a neat new rub that you put on baby back ribs before you cook them, you, you've got a recipe. One of our mine and Joy's friends uh, found that his mother made a really good dressing. And uh, they just looked forward to Thanksgiving so they could eat her dressing. Well, one day, you know, the wife asked, her mother-in-law for the dressing recipe. And the mother-in-law, you know, gave it to her in a few days and she made the dressing and wasn't too good. Must not have done something right. So a little bit later, she made it again. Still wasn't too good. And she and, and you know, her husband got to thinking, you know what? We think mom maybe left out a couple of ingredients so yours wouldn't be as good as hers. Got to have the right recipe. Several years ago, when we still lived in Newberry, we had an elderly couple live next to us, sweet, sweet people. She was a really good cook, and around Christmas time, they would, she would usually make something for us. Well, right before Christmas, it, it, you know, she was getting a little dementia. She brought down a couple of coconut cream pies. And boy, they looked good. They were so pretty. We couldn't wait for dessert time that day to get a taste of those coconut cream pies. And, you know, we sliced them up and we passed them around the family and we all took a bite and went, eh, what is going on here? And uh, Joy and I took another bite and said, ah, oh, that's terrible. What in the world is it? And uh, we thought and we thought and we tasted a little more and we think we finally figured it out. For some reason or another, she had put onion powder in the coconut cream pie. And onion powder isn't good at a coconut cream pie. You've got to follow the recipe. You've got to have all the right ingredients, but please no extra ingredients. Church at Philippi needed a recipe. They needed a recipe about how they were supposed to live as a church. A man named Epaphroditus was a messenger from Philippi to Paul when he was in prison. And he had gone to them and he had good news and he had bad news. The good news was they had taken up an offering for him. And that was going to sustain him, help meet his needs, and help further his ministry. The bad news was there was some trouble brewing in that church. They had some good things going on. In fact, this is probably one of the best churches mentioned in the New Testament. But some of the members were beginning not to get along so well. And so Paul, when he wrote them, not only wrote to thank them for their gift, but he also wrote to remind them, hey, there's some things that need to be in the life of the church that will help it to be just what it's supposed to be. So that's what we've got in this scripture this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we have some ingredients for a Christ-like church. And the first three here, notice that he says, if, or if, or if, and, you know, the, the idea behind that is not, well, you know, not, well, maybe we have it or maybe we don't. Really, the idea behind it is since. So if you read the word since there instead of if, you might get a little better understanding of what Paul was driving toward. So he's saying, since you have these things. In other words, these are things that Christ already gives to us, and it, it forms one of those ingredients that are supposed to be in the church. First of all, he says, since you have been you not have any encouragement from being united with Christ. We get our encouragement from being united with Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, if you have been united with him in the likeness of his death, you shall be united with him also in the likeness of his resurrection. We are united with Christ. We are linked with Christ. We are linked with Christ because of the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Christ offered it to us, and we had the, the leadership of God and the good sense to accept it so that we have been linked with Christ. Now we are in union with Christ. And that gives us encouragement because, you see, Christ is our advocate. He's the one who's on our side. In 1 John chapter 2, the Scripture says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He speaks to the Father in our defense, even when we mess up. Boy, isn't that an encouragement? Paul wrote to the Romans and says, remember Jesus is at the right hand of God, always interceding for us. Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus is praying for you? He's praying for you, the risen Son of God. What an encouragement. What an encouragement that we have that union with Him, and He has done so much for us and dying on the cross for us, and He continues to do so much for us. We have encouragement in Christ. Then it says, if any comfort from His love. Man, Jesus comforts us with his love. Interesting verse over in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Zephaniah. It's one of my favorite verses, Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine God? God himself the Lord God, the everlasting God, the God who is mighty to save, takes delight in you. He takes delight in you as His child. And then He says, He quiets you. How? With His love. When we have the assurance of His love, oh, what a comfort it is. What a comfort it is to know that He loves us. And He's proved that love for us. Jesus proved His love for us. He loved us so much, He died on the cross for us. We hear it all the time. Stop and think about it for a moment. 
He died on the cross for you. For you. He gives you His comfort, the comfort of His love, so that we can abide in that comfort even in the midst of turmoil because we know the risen Christ does love us. And then he says, if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who has come to live within us. Corinthians, we read, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The Holy Spirit of God, when we accepted Jesus as Savior, came to live within us. And as He came to live with us, in us, we have that fellowship with Him. We have closeness with Him. We have a relationship with Him. And in that relationship, He helps us to grow in the faith. In that relationship with Him, He gives us discernment into spiritual matters so that we understand the things of the faith. He gives us discernment about how to live and gives us guidance when we have to make decisions. And that Holy Spirit who lives within us empowers us. He empowers us to resist temptation. He empowers us to live the Christian life. He empowers us to share about Jesus with others. Remember the promise of Jesus? Once I've gone back into the heaven, the Holy Spirit will come and He will empower you to be my witnesses. A couple of weeks we will take the training. Every believer a witness. That's what God wants from us. That's what He expects of us. That's what He wants to use to bring others to Himself. We're going to do the training. But once we get the training, we're not going to be an effective witness in our own power. It will be in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that, come and take that training. Be equipped so that He can use you. And then let Him use you. because It, it won't be you and your power. It will be God and His power and the power of His Spirit who is in you. So, ingredients. One more. Two more. Tenderness and compassion. Tenderness and compassion. We have a Savior who has been tender and compassionate with us. We have a God who is concerned about us and cares for us. He's with us. When God first introduced Himself to Moses, one of the things God said to Moses there at the burning bush was, I have indeed seen the misery of my people Israel. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Our God is compassionate toward us. He sees what we go through. He hears our cry when we're heartbroken. He knows what is going on and He is concerned. And He's going to do something. And we see this reflected so well in Jesus and in Jesus' ministry. Listen to these verses from Mark. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged Him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Filled with compassion. Our God is filled with compassion. 
Our Lord is filled with compassion toward us. You know, we don't live in a very compassionate time. There's all kinds of acrimony between the people around us, you know, whether it's politicians at one another in Washington or in West Columbia. There's, there's road rage. There's bullying. We just don't have much compassion for one another anymore. But our God hasn't lost His compassion for us. He still loves us. He still sees. He still hears. He still cares. He still helps. So, to start off our recipe for what a church should be, God has given us the first four ingredients. He's given us encouragement. He's given us comfort. He's given us that compassion and tenderness. He's given us the fellowship of His Holy Spirit. Those are the first four ingredients. And when we have those ingredients, then it helps us to be able to start to assemble the other ingredients for ourselves. And so he says, unity. Look at verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, being in unity. We're to be like-minded, he says. Be like-minded. Now, that doesn't mean we are going to agree on everything. The pastor that did Mind and Joy's premarital counseling used to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't necessary. We're not going to agree on everything. We're not going to agree on everything in a marriage. We're not going to agree on everything in the church. But that doesn't mean we can't be like-minded. That doesn't mean we can't still accept one another, be open to each other's ideas, and come to some kind of agreement on how to do things. And then notice that he says, have the same love. The love that God has given us, the love that we give back to Him, the love that we give to one another. Same love. All comes from God. God enables us to love Him back. And God enables us to love one another. The same love. Be one in spirit and in purpose. What's our purpose? Well, Jesus made it plain. He made it plain in two ways. First of all, He gave us the great commandment. Love your, the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's our purpose. That's what we're supposed to be doing here at church. We're supposed to be loving God. Praising Him, worshiping Him, living in a way that pleases Him, loving God with our total being and loving each other and loving those out beyond the walls of our church because a neighbor is anyone in need that we can help. That's our purpose. And then what's our other purpose? Well, Jesus gave it to us in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples, telling them about Jesus, sharing what Jesus means, bringing them into the fellowship of the church and helping them grow in the faith so that they genuinely become followers of Jesus. That's our purpose. Those things are our purpose. Jesus has given them to us. We've tried to reflect that in our purpose statement, our mission statement. Connecting with Jesus, connecting with one another, connecting others with Jesus. Pretty simple. But it covers the basis, one, in spirit and in purpose. And the result is joy. The result is joy. Paul said, make my joy complete. You know, he's the one that started that church. He was the one that loved that church. Yeah. When you cooperate with one another, when you live in 
in, in unity with one another as a congregation, boy, are the leaders glad. Boy, is the pastor glad. It ain't no fun trying to put out a whole bunch of fires when people are with each other. It's joyous when we're working together. You understand that if you have kids. If your kids are little, but they're always squabbling with one another and fighting, you know, it just wears you out trying to keep them straightened out. If you're an adult and you have an adult children and they aren't getting along with their brothers and sisters, that doesn't make you happy. It makes you sad. But when there's harmony between the children, the parents are glad. When there's harmony in the church, the leaders are glad. One day, you're going to get a new permanent pastor. Make his joy complete by having the kind of church which you're not going to agree on everything, but you get along, you cooperate, you come to compromises, you work together, and you love one another. You're going to make his joy complete. And that's a great goal for you to have. Then, something else. He talks about humility in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or with vain conceit, but in humility consider others greater than yourselves. Humility. Humility is not thinking bad about yourself or thinking poorly about yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself at all. You know, it's, it's more focused on the others. Several years ago, one of our state conventions, they were getting ready to give an award to one of the leaders from, who had been over at Connie Maxwell Children's Home for a, for a good many years. And he was on stage. He knew he was supposed to give a report. And when they started talking about they were going to give a reward, that man turned around and looked behind him to see who they were talking about. He wasn't thinking about himself. He thought somebody else must be getting a reward. And he was getting it. And I thought, man, what an example of humility. You know, most of us think, oh boy, I'm going to get up there. They'll give it to me. Humility. Humility means that you're humble enough to be a servant. Jesus was humble enough to be a servant. Remember what the choir sang? Washed our feet. He was humble enough to wash his disciples' feet. If there was a job out there he needed doing, he wasn't too great and high and holy to do it. He was just a servant. He just did it. And then he says, not out of selfish ambition. Not out of selfish ambition. My goodness. How countercultural is that? Because most people live based on selfish ambition. What can I do to get myself ahead? One of the, the paraphrase translations that we have in the New Testament is called the message. And that it translates uh, this, <coughs> this verse by saying this. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Well, I, you know, that's you know, putting aside ambition, not having any room for ambition. And then no room for conceit. No room for conceit. You know, boy, I am somebody and I deserve first place. I want to be number one in everything. Now, we put a lot of emphasis in our culture on being number one. Sometimes we overdo it because we get so competitive that we get conceited. And you know what? 
You can be a conceited religious person. You ever thought about that? Look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. Boy, were they ever a conceited bunch. Jesus told about one really conceited Pharisee one time. He said he went to the temple and played, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other people. I thank you I come to church and I tithe and I am really a righteous person. I'm not even like this old tax collector over here. Talk about conceit. Man, sometimes we get conceited with God. But you remember the rest of that parable? The tax collector, the guy that on the lowest rung in that society, wouldn't even draw near the altar. Hung and said and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, he's the one who went home justified. You may be able to sing better than others. You may be able to pray more beautiful prayers than others. You may be able to teach. Oh, the people just love to come to your class. That's great. If you use it as a servant, if you start patting yourself on the back, then you might be getting a little conceited. There's no room for that. And each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider others better than yourselves. You know, that means there's no room for hate, no room for jealousy, no room for envy, probably no room for gossip, no room for slander. You just don't be, treat people that way. You just don't. Consider others better than yourselves, and those things aren't there. No room for opposing groups. You know, we can get into our little groups. You know, even in the church. You know, I'm on this side and I'm on that side. We're not going to talk to you. Doesn't know with you. You know what happens? It's not supposed to happen. Not if we're counting others better than ourselves. It won't happen. Now. Catch yourselves better than others. Let me back up just a second. That goes back to the humility, doesn't it? That goes back to the humility. Considering yourselves better than others. Remember in the Old Testament when Abraham and his nephew Lot were doing so well materially that their flocks and herds were increasing and increasing and growing and growing and it got that both of them had so much they didn't have any room to stay together and they got together and said, okay, we're going to have to separate. And Abraham said to Lot, you choose. You choose whichever you want. Now, Abraham was the uncle. Abraham was the senior. Abraham had been the leader of that whole family. But he let Lot choose, and Lot chose what he thought was the best pasture, best place for his sheep and goats and flocks and herds. And Abraham led him. He counted his nephew better than himself. He was humble. Why? Why could Abraham be that humble? Who is Abraham? He's the man of faith. Isn't he the man of faith? He had enough faith in God that even though he gave somebody else first place, God was going to take care of him. And if we have the idea, if we have the faith that God is our God, He sees us, He hears us, He cares for us, and He acts on our behalf, we don't have to push ourselves to the front. God's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us. And so we won't have to get ugly about things. 
He's going to provide. He's going to provide. And then he said, look after the interest of others. But all, not, look not only after the interest of others, but also the interests of self. Look after others. Be concerned for them. Be concerned for what's happening with them. You know, look after them. Yeah, the, the word look there comes from the Greek scopus, which we have in English as scope. And it's used with microscope or telescope or scope on a rifle. You know, it just helps you to see better. So the idea is see better. See what's around you. See what needs to be done. And then do something to help. Pay attention to other people's needs. Joe and I attended a funeral in Spartanburg on, on Tuesday. And as we got to singing the congregational hymns, nobody had left hymnals for the preachers. And so they were up there, you know, sometimes we know the words and sometimes we don't. And uh, I wasn't preaching. It was others. Others were doing that. And, uh, but they didn't have any hymnals. So they were struggling through the hymn. Well, all of a sudden, a man, you know, about halfway up, got up, came down to the front, two hymnals, and one to each minister. Now, he just had the habit and somebody told me later that, that that was just him. He saw a need and he responded to it. That's, that's the kind of man he was. That's the way we all ought to be. Look after the interests of others. So that's the way you ought to be when you come to church. See a young mother struggling to get in the door with her diaper bag and the baby and everything else? Go and open the door for her. You, know, you realize that a guest is sitting close to you in church? Introduce yourself. Find out their name. You know, be friendly with them. Invite them, you know, to come back. Invite them out to lunch. You, know, you just see a need and you respond to it. You know somebody that doesn't know the Lord. Figure out some way you can share Jesus with them you know, so that they might come. You see needs and respond to them. And then what happens? When you put all of these ingredients together in a church, there'll be unity. You will be with one another. You will be in unity. There will be joy among the leaders and among the people. Because you come to church, there's a joy to come to church. No fun to come to church. You've got a bickering and squabbling. When people care about one another and love one another and help one another, you want to come. There'll be mutual help. If everybody has the attitude, I'm looking out for the benefit of others, then everybody's going to be looked after. Now, somebody's going to see your need and respond to it. And honor is going to be given to Christ because he wants a church that is like that, that has all these ingredients in it. Now, these ingredients are to be used for a healthy church, a church that honors Christ. But you know what? They work real good in a marriage. They work real good in a marriage. You could take this passage and take these ingredients and put them in your marriage and guarantee it'll get even better. Help them make a strong family. If you're teaching your children these things and your children are practicing them and you're practicing them between mom and dad, no, it's going to make a difference. Make a difference in your friendships, your other relationships, maybe even your, what's going on at work. How about that? Jesus gives us some of the ingredients. He asks us to assemble the rest of them. Maybe you need to rededicate yourself today for, for doing that. Maybe for your family, maybe for your church. Maybe you need to come and put your membership in this church today. 
Maybe you need today a Savior who cares for you, a Savior who knows your needs, a Savior who loves you, a Savior who died for you, a Savior who is alive forevermore and can bless you now and for eternity. Won't you come to Jesus today if you've never ever received Him? You won't find a better Savior no matter where you look. Come to Jesus today. Our invitation hymn this morning is number 413.